Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We will now proceed with our second panel on religion, politics and elections in the region. I would like to invite our speakers and chairperson for this panel to take their seats on stage. Now, please welcome our chairperson, Mr. Han Fook Kwang, Senior Fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies and Editor-at-Large with The Straits Times. Mr. Han will introduce our speakers and moderate the session. Yep. Thank you very much, uh, Melvin, and uh, good afternoon. Uh, this is the second panel this afternoon on the topic uh, religion, politics and elections in the region. And uh, We have three very distinguished uh, speakers on the panel, so I will just very briefly introduce them uh, to you. On my extreme right is uh, Professor James Chin, the inaugural director of the Asia Institute, Tasmania, University of Tasmania, and his work is mainly on governance issues in Southeast Asia, especially Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. Next to him, is uh, Rohan Gunaratna, who is Professor of Security Studies at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at the Nanyang Technological University. Uh, Well-known uh, person uh, dealing with these sort of issues. And finally, on my uh, right, a person who really needs no introduction. If you need me to introduce Bilhari, I think you're in the wrong room. Uh, <laughs> Well, anyway, he's currently chairman of the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore and for many years the permanent secretary at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I think this panel will be slightly different from uh, the previous panel in that uh, I understand the speakers will be dealing with specific uh, cases and, and countries in the interplay between uh, politics and religion. I know James, for example, is going to speak uh, about Malaysia. Uh, and how the politics, uh, the, how Islam there influences and shapes the politics there. Uh, Rohan is going to talk about uh, Sri Lanka and especially about some of the recent uh, very violent and tragic incidents there. I'm not very sure what Bilahari is going to say, but all I do know is that whatever he's going to say will be well worth listening to. <laughs> So without further ado, let me call uh, James uh, to speak first. Uh, thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to start off by thanking uh, Matthews and IPS for the kind invitation for me to come and speak to you. Um, in some ways, I have the easiest job to do because I'm sure that uh, Singaporeans know Malaysia very well. So basically, I'm just uh, giving a summary of... of of the latest trend in Malaysia, especially what I call the rise of political Islam. So basically what I want to do in my 15 minutes is basically talk about the sources of political Islam in Malaysia. And I think it's important that we identify the sources as uh, coming from two areas. One is the former sources, but I think a lot of people when they look at Malaysia, they forget about the informal source of political Islam. Then I want to talk a bit about the pressure points. Uh, why it is so difficult to deal with this issue, and finally I'll provide a very brief summary of what I think. So I'd like to start off by saying that when I talk about political Islam here, I'm not really talking about Islam as a religion, but I'm really talking about politicians in Malaysia who are using Islam to mobilize the polity, specifically the Muslim community there. Basically, these politicians are using Islam as the only platform to gather support from the Muslim community and the wider Malaysian community. 
So when I talk about the former sources of political Islam, I think the starting point really has to be the Malaysian constitution. I think if you look at it closely, no matter how you come up, whether you're a constitutional lawyer, political scientist, or even a layman, in terms of the Malaysian constitution, you really can't separate the Malay identity with Islam. Uh, part of it has got to do with the fact that it's written very clearly in the constitution that, you know, if you are a Muslim in Malaysia, you're also a Malay, and there's no way around it. The other problem is, in the Malaysian constitution, it says very clearly that Islam is the religion of federation, but the problem is that very often the second part is not taken into account. So what you have is, Islam is the religion of the federation, but other religions may be practiced in peace and harmony in any part of the federation. But the problem in Malaysia is that very often, people only talk about the first part of the sentence, which is Islam is the religion of the federation. And in practice, they take it to mean that Islam is actually the official religion. Now, I would argue that if this is the case, the framers of the constitution made it very clear that Islam is the official religion, but they did not use the phrase. They used the phrase that Islam is the religion of the federation. Thus, what we have in Malaysia from the constitutional viewpoint is that a Malay is equal to a Muslim, equals to a special position because Islam is the uh, uh, religion of the federation, and therefore, the thinking is that Islam is also the official religion. In other words, being a Malay means that you are higher than all other peoples of Malaysia. And this is reinforced by all the major Muslim-majority political parties in Malaysia. And of course here, I'm talking about AMNO, the former ruling party who's been in power for 61 years. I'm also talking about past party Islam Malaysia, from the name alone is very clear where they stand. And of course, the new ruling party in Malaysia, Besatu. Now, looking back in history or contemporary history, we really have to look at the role of AMNO. AMRO was basically the de facto ruling party in Malaysia, despite the fact that officially they called themselves the Malay Alliance and after that the Barisan National. But in actual practice, they were basically the ruling party. They don't really care about what the other component parties in the ruling coalition wants. Now, when you talk about the rise of political Islam, you really have to look back in the 1980s. And the starting point really has to be 1981, when Mahathir came into power. Mahathir very early on knew that he really had accumulated a lot of political power because he was a man in a hurry. Um, I always regarded Mahathir as a true nationalist. He really wanted to develop Malaysia and make sure Malaysia was a fully developed country. And he understood that in order to do that, he really needed to accumulate uh, real political power. And he also saw correctly during the 1980s that his major threat to his uh, accumulation of power, of course, was party Islam Malaysia. And therefore, to play the game in order to beat pass, he really have to bring in Islam. And he did this in a very clever way. He looked around and see who was the person who can really mobilize the Islamic ground. And of course, the answer was Anwar Ibrahim. So that's the reason why he brought Anwar Ibrahim into government. And he inserted Islam into the public administration of the country. But more importantly, during his first term in government, he established a lot of Islamic-related institutions. I don't want to go through the list, but the major ones is such as the Islamic University, Islamic Banking. But probably the most important element that he introduced or establishment uh, uh, institution that he established was, of course, JAKIM, which is the Department of Islamic uh, Development in Malaysia. Now, what is really interesting about JAKIM is that since then, JAKIM has accumulated a lot of power. Uh, if you speak to people in Malaysia, especially in civil service, they will tell you that JAKIM really... It's a special part of the civil service. They have lots of autonomy, and essentially they do what they want. But the really important thing about Jakim is that they're trying to promote this idea of a Malay Islamic state. 
Now, this is really, really interesting because those of you who know anything about Islam know that Islam has no racial character. But they're trying to build this idea that you know, in Malaysia, the situation is unique and that we're trying to build this thing called a Malay Islamic State. The other really important thing about Jakim, of course, is that they're trying to bureaucratize Islam. Again, this is, uh, I'm not saying it's unique to Malaysia, but the way Jakim has gone about it is quite interesting because they come up with all sorts of rules and regulations. Now, I'm, talking, I'm not only talking about personal behavior, but they're talking about rules and regulations that covers every facet of Muslim life. So one of the unusual things you'll find in the civil service, say compared to the 60s and 70s in Malaysia now, is that uh, many departmental heads in Malaysia, uh, in government service in Malaysia now, uh, you, are put, you are put under tremendous pressure to organize religious stuff, which did not happen before. Okay? So the end game is that you create sort of an intolerant climate, as the speakers in the first panel has mentioned, the idea of us versus others. But this comes from the bureaucracy itself within the government. So I think we have a problem there, and the attitude is that you know, it's us against them, and as the speakers in the first panel has mentioned, uh, the major targets are people who disagree with them or who don't go along with the idea of a Malay Islamic State, which is the own Muslim community. But also, there's also a lot of intolerance over the non-Muslim population in Malaysia. And I'm sure you all know, uh, Malaysia, almost one-third of the population actually non-Muslims. Now, moving very quickly on to the role of PAS. Now, PAS, as the name suggests, Party Islam Malaysia, has always had this idea of trying to create Negara Islam from day one. So they've always used Islam as a platform to mobilize support in the Malay community. Now, what is really interesting about uh, uh, PAS is that during the time when Mahathir began to assert himself as an Islamic leader, right, uh, PAS began to create all sorts of fringe groups and supported all sorts of NGOs in Malaysia as long as these Islamic NGOs went against the government. So today, if you look at PAS, right, what is really interesting about PAS is not so much their Islamic party, but their extensive links. If you look at the leadership of PAS, you'll find that many of the leaders of PAS have extensive links with Islamic NGOs. And a lot of them actually, uh, you know, uh, before they enter PAS, they were actually uh, founders of these NGOs. So the end game of this uh, competition between AMNO and PAS, I would argue, is that they basically push the Malay party to the right. There's no other, other, other space in the Malay polity in Malaysia other than being an Islamic champion. So that's the former part, political parties government, the ruling party. Now the really interesting part, and this is an area that's been understudied in Malaysia, is the informal pressure of political Islam in Malaysia. And this is the rise of Islamic NGOs. Now one of the key speakers in the first session talked about Saudi Arabia pouring a lot of money overseas. And Malaysia is one of the countries in Southeast Asia that has actually received a lot of this money. Uh, this money went to individuals. A lot, of the, a lot of Malaysians actually received a lot of scholarships to study in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we know quite a number of them when they came back, they set out their own private madrasa. Uh, some of them got involved with Salafi and Wahhabi teachings. Um, I don't want to go into details, but the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, a lot of these things about the rise of political Islam in Malaysia, not only from the government side, but the informal side, there's an external dimension to it. Uh, in recent years, a lot of this influence actually come from uh, preachers, uh, especially those who are trained from the Indian subcontinent, places like Pakistan. Uh, they've come back and they've become very, very influential. And part of it, of course, is the rise of social media. So one of the interesting television programs in Malaysia is that you know they went out and have a competition about who is the uh, you know a young ulama, who is the best young ulama around. And if you watch the programs carefully, you see that a lot of them are actually very adept in using social media. 
So after four decades of all these uh, uh, investments in Islam, in political Islam, what do you get? Uh, the end result really now is that uh, Islamic identity in Malaysia is now much stronger than the Malay identity. Uh, many, many surveys in Malaysia have shown that if you ask the young Malays in Malaysia, right, would you call yourself a Malay Muslim or Muslim Malay? Uh, many of them will actually say that I'm a Muslim first uh, rather than a Malay. And this is a drastic change, say, from the uh, 60s, 70s and early 80s. Uh, increasingly, a small minority of them, and the numbers are growing uh, bigger and bigger every year, is that uh, they reject the sort of government system we have in Malaysia. Uh, they want an Islamic state. Uh, many of them do not accept the current mainstream political process in Malaysia. Um, the other important thing is that because of the nature of the rise of political Islam, right, uh, no Malay politicians today will talk about less Islam in the state. In fact, every politician is talking about infusing more Islam into the state system. Uh, the increasing uh, dimensions of, of political Islam, especially the spread of Wahhabi and Salafi teachings in Malaysia, is a real worry. Uh, my, my colleagues who does work in this area tell me that you know, it's, it's quite incredible that if you go to some of these private madrasa, right, even the state itself, I'm talking about the Malaysian state, and I'm talking about including Jakim, right, they don't really know what is actually being taught, especially in terms of the curriculum. Uh, the other worrying thing is that the state in Malaysia, the Malaysian state, no longer confront these groups. Uh, they will only confront them if, for example, uh, you know, if they start talking about taking up arms or going to Syria or joining ISIS, and that's on national security grounds. Or if they are part of a narrative which doesn't fit into the idea of a Malay Islamic State, uh, things like the Shah teaching and all that sort of thing. If they do this sort of thing, the state will take action against them. Other than these two areas, I don't see the Malaysian state doing anything about them. Uh, the other side issue which I think is very important in what we're discussing today in terms of identity politics is that the rise of political Islam in Malaysia has also created a backlash among the non-Muslim population. So you see that the non-Muslim population in some ways are also getting more religious. And this is especially true of the younger Christians in Malaysia. Uh, they, they are getting themselves involved with evangelist uh, uh, Christian groups in Malaysia. So what are the pressure points that we're talking about when we talk about Malaysia? Um, I think the first thing is, as I mentioned earlier, is that who actually controls the Islamic bureaucracy? Uh, this is an interesting question because going back to the constitution, it says very clearly in the states where there's a sultan, the sultan is actually the ultimate authority on Islam. So this means that there are questions raised even within the Islamic community in Malaysia as to whether Jakim is legitimate. Uh, there are lots of Islamic scholars in Malaysia today who argue that you know, Jakim is actually not legitimate because Jakim is trying to take powers away from the sultan. Uh, this is the reason why there are lots of issues dealing with the standardization of things like fatwa. Uh, for example, the National Fatwa Committee, uh, at the state level, some of them do not agree with it. There's also uh, worrying in terms of creating a permanent pool of students who have very, very limited contact with the non-Muslim population. And there are many people who are worried that they, this, this pool of students, especially the private madrasa, uh, they are they are already poor recruits for some of the radical teachings that are coming through on social media, also from the individual preachers. The other pressure point I think uh, very often people forget is that uh, a lot of these things happening in Malaya is not happening in Sabah and Sarawak. And in Sabah and Sarawak, I can tell you from personal experience that a lot of the people, the population, especially the indigenous non-Malay population, the non-Muslim population in Sabah and Sarawak are very worried about this. Uh, a lot of them 
um, you can tell the way they talk, the sort of the narrative they put out on social media. Um, they sort of are very worried about this and there are political implications. So the example of a political implication coming out of this rise of political Islam is that uh, for the very first time since the 1980s, right, uh, the ruling party in Sabah and Sarawak are not members of Pakatan Harapan. Uh, they're not part of the federal government. So for example, Pati Warisan uh, Sabah uh, is actually just an ally of Pakatan Harapan. They're not a formal member of Pakatan Harapan. Uh, while the ruling party in Sarawak, uh, GPS, is actually uh, opposition at the state level. So in summary, uh, basically my argument is that there's no easy answers to this issue of identity politics, especially political Islam Malaysia. Uh, part of it has got to do with the Malaysian constitution. Part of it has got to do with the way uh, the bureaucracy, especially the role of Jakim. Part of it has got to do with the political parties. But whatever it is, I think the solution will have to come from the Malay community. Uh, the really sad thing is that the Dom Malays are totally shut of this process. At the present moment, it is my reading that there is no political will to confront this issue of the rise of political Islam, especially the intolerance side, because uh, a lot of people in Malaysia think that this can be dealt with as a security issue. There is also no political consensus uh, as to whether Malaysia is really you know, a Malay Islamic state or whether it's a multicultural, multicultural and multi-religious society. Uh, the re other point that I think all of you know is that there's actually uh, very little moderate voices in Malaysia because they've all been shut down. All current indications and information is that uh, political Islam will be much, much stronger. And I can tell you, uh, within the next one or two months, you see an uh, agreement being signed between us and AMNO to formally come together to try uh, to win the next uh, general elections in Malaysia. Thank you. Is this one? Yep. Okay, I think you've highlighted some uh, very interesting facets of uh, political Islam in, in Malaysia, some of which are unique to Malaysia, some of which you can see elsewhere. But uh, whatever they are, uh, especially important for, especially interesting for us here in Singapore because of our shared history and uh, close proximity. Now, can I call upon uh, Professor Rohan to uh, deliver your speech? Ladies and gentlemen, when did it all start? It was 1979. Three pivotal events changed the face of Islam. First, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, December 1979. We saw more than 30,000 Muslims from Asia, Africa, Middle East, the Caucasus, Europe, North America traveling to Pakistan to fight against the Soviets. The Soviets were checkmated. They were defeated. We also saw two other events, 1979, the Iranian Revolution. The Iranians held the Americans as hostages for 444 days. There's very little the United States could do. Third was the siege of the Grand Mosque in Mecca. Once again, for several weeks, the Saudi authorities grappled to break the siege. 
these three events characterized the power of political Islam. And we saw the emergence of hundreds of extremists and terrorist groups. From this region of Southeast Asia, 600 Muslims traveled from Singapore, from Malaysia, from Indonesia, and the Philippines to Pakistan. And they fought against the Soviets. That is the contemporary beginning of the extremists and the terrorist groups in Southeast Asia. In South Asia, it was a bit different. During that time, no one went from India. Although the second largest Muslim population was in India. Because Mrs. Gandhi at that time regulated what was happening in India. So religious space must be very tightly regulated. If it is left for, a, for the non-state groups to regulate, then they will preach hatred and violence. This is a key lesson that constantly and continuously reverberate throughout the recent history. This is a very quick introduction. But let me share with you that in 1988, August 11th, Al-Qaeda was formed. And Al-Qaeda created the first global terrorist movement. The second global terrorist movement was created by the Islamic State. 2003, March, when Abu Musab al-Zakawi, a veteran of the Afghan conflict, came to the north of Iraq, to Kurmal, and established Tawhid wal-Jihad, which later became the Islamic State what the Americans called ISIL or ISIS. So let me share with you that the Sri Lankan conflict. Sri Lanka never suffered from Muslim terrorism until Easter Sunday of this year. Muslim community in Sri Lanka is a model community. In fact, throughout the fight against the Tamil Tigers, the Muslims played a pivotal role in supporting the Sri Lankan government. The mentor of the Special Operations Forces of Sri Lanka, Colonel Fazli Lafir, close friend and a colleague of mine, he was eventually killed in battle. He was a Muslim. So was the commanding officer of the Military Intelligence Corps, Colonel Nizam Mutalif. And the Muslims continued to support the Sri Lankan state. But Sri Lanka suffered a terrorist attack on Easter Sunday. The Sri Lankan government did not pay attention to the flow of Sri Lankans to Syria and Iraq. 41 Sri Lankans traveled, largely from two families, the Mushin family and the Tajuddin family. Starting January 5th, 2015. But the new government that came to power in Sri Lanka was a very liberal government largely influenced by American and European ideals. They want to relax all security measures. So they did five things that created the space for the emergence of these extremists and terrorist groups. One is the basic security measures, the national security infrastructure that existed was degraded. 
the military intelligence corps which was the most powerful intelligence service in the north and the east its operational wing was severely weakened second is the checkpoints the static checkpoints and the snap roadblocks they were removed third is there was a system to regulate the foreign preachers that visited sri lanka they had to apply for a religious visa this was done away with and about 600 religious preachers would come every year from pakistan and from saudi arabia and they brought different ideologies that eventually replaced the sufi form of islam what you call the tariqa which is the traditional muslim heritage muslims have practiced in sri lanka for over a thousand years so the new forms of islam that came it was not compatible for sri lanka because sri lanka is a multi ethnic and a multi religious society and today the sufi form of islam only 20% practice 80% practice islam from other sects largely introduced from overseas another is the hosting and the posting of extremist content on the web was not regulated and that caused the biggest problem because it radicalized not only the muslims but there was reciprocal radicalization it radicalized the buddhists and today there are a number of buddhist extremist groups that the sri lankan government has failed to ban to this date one is budubala sena another is sihala rave and i want to share with you that i interviewed the budubala sena main monk his name is nyanasara the same way my friend professor mark jogansmaya interviewed his counterpart in myanmar a man called virathu i asked nyanasara firstly when i went to see nyanasara as a practicing buddhist i felt very apish to go and worship him which is the custom in buddhism because he had insulted the muslims publicly but when i asked a member of my family she said you are not worshiping the monk you are worshiping the robe go and worship him so i worshiped him then finally i told the monk if you continue to call the muslims paraya paraya is a was like a foreigner but in a very derogatory sense there will be a riot like july 83 and this monk told me that is exactly what must happened then i asked the monk about his ideology then he told me that his ideology is based on virathu the monk in myanmar who is now a fugitive who has been hunted but may not get caught and also shivasena the hindu right wing group then the british national party and le pen's party in france so i told him this has nothing to do with buddhism so i want to share with you all these groups that i shared with you they are political movements they are not religious movements we can call them religious groups but actually they are using religion they are misusing and abusing religion they are selectively using passages of religion there's nothing wrong with islam 
but simply that these are political entrepreneurs who seek those passages from the religious text scripture that can be used and misused. So let me share with you that after these terrorist attacks, which was a huge failure of national security, after a week, the Sinhala mobs attacked the Muslims. It was a very unfortunate incident. And the military and the police responded very effectively. But still, I want to tell you, against a mob carrying weapons, there's a limit on how to respond. There are many challenges, many difficulties. So the violence spread. The attacks took the country back by 10 years. The economy was quite severely damaged. And the biggest problem, as I see it, is that the Sinhalese and the Muslims have been polarized. And there is very significant radicalization. The main attacker is Zaharan Kasim. He has traveled to many countries. But Zaharan himself was recruited and indoctrinated by a man called Milhan, who came from Saudi Arabia. And he spent a lot of time in Qatar. And Milhan ran a website together with another very important ideologue called Naufa. So Milhan and Naufa were the two key players that gave him the violent ideology to move forward. And he was joined by a man called Ilham Muhammad, Muhammad Ibrahim, son of a very wealthy merchant. In fact, there are three IS networks that were created in Sri Lanka. One is IS Eastern Province that was run by Zahran. The IS Central Province that was run by Nilam, who was killed in Syria and Iraq in 2015. And the IS Western Province that is a group called JMI, the Jamiatul Millati Ibrahim Fisilani organization. And these three groups united to stage this attack. This is the attack in Shangarilla. This is the Catholic shrine that was attacked in Kochikade, in Colombo. This shrine I myself visited, although I am not a Christian, because in Sri Lanka, Buddhists visit Christian shrines. Christians visit Buddhist shrines. So last week, my wife, she joined me to visit the Buddhist temple in Singapore, but she is a Catholic. So you can see that how these people, there's very close relationship between these religions. This is in Nigambo, the church. This was attacked. So I spent a lot of time talking to the people. I spoke to the psychologist who worked on this. And this psychologist told me something very interesting. He said that the children who survived this attack, they don't want to go anymore to the church or to school, or even out of the house, because they are living in fear. And if they see a Muslim with a beard, or with a cap, they say, oh, he's a terrorist. Or a Muslim lady wearing a abaya. So, in the art therapy classes, they drew such images, I will show you. 
This is the Zion Church in Batiklo. This is Cinnamon Grand, another beautiful hotel that was attacked, and the Kingsbury. And this man want to bomb the Taj Hotel, the Indian hotel, but the device didn't work. So he asked a three-wheeler, take me to a motel. And then in the motel, he tried to fix the device and he blew up, he killed himself. And then, one of the wife of the bombers, when the police went to that house, she detonated. She was six months pregnant with her two children. This is the ideology. This is the virus that we have to control, which we are not. So the Sri Lankan Muslim heritage was replaced. We all must protect the Muslim heritage in our own countries. Must not allow these foreign viruses to come. If they come, we'll be destroyed. So we have to have very strict rules and regulations. This is uncompromising. But this, even my Muslim friends, they disagree with me. So I continue to debate with them. These are the likely threats. Imminent threat of a large-scale attack is over. Because Zahran's network has been dismantled. But the ecosystem or the radicalization pipeline is still intact. The mosques, the madrasas and the associations. Not all, just a few. So the Muslim leaders today are complaining about the backlash. No one is talking about the attack. No one is talking about the attack. But that is the tragedy of the world. Let me share with you, the president has arrested the police chief and the defense secretary. I met him and I told him, you have made a mistake. You have to take the responsibility. The two apex leaders have to take the responsibility. Because they didn't understand the security challenge. Leaders have a special challenge in this period. This is the six-year-old child drew that where, next to the church, crime. The church, you can see the ambulance taking. You can see one of the posters. One child drew, I love Jesus. I hate Prophet Muhammad. The impact. My time is up. So I have to conclude this presentation. But I want to tell you, Singapore has built a huge capability to fight this wave of extremism and terrorism. This didn't start recently. It started when IRO was created, when the Harmony Act was enacted. And more recently, that is since the Al-Qaeda wave, Singapore has done brilliantly to produce the laws, the rehabilitation programs, the community engagement programs, so many efforts. And I want to tell you that in Sri Lanka, now they are crafting an act, Harmony Act, modeled on Singapore. So I thank Singapore very much. Oh. Thank you, Rohan. Uh, obviously, many lessons uh, that you can learn from the situation in uh, Sri Lanka and what's, what has happened there. 
Rohan, I think you can do a full day seminar with all your slides. Uh, okay, now we, I now turn to Bilahari. Bilahari, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you. With your permission, can you all hear me? I'll sit, I'll talk sitting down. Uh, I'm not going to talk in these initial remarks about any specific case, whether it's the Malaysian elections or Indonesian elections or any other country in Southeast Asia. I'll be happy to give you my views on these, on these specific cases during question time, but I'm going to use my opening comments to make some general points on what I think all these specific cases have in common. And what they have in common is not religion per se, or any particular religion, whether it's Islam or Christianity or Hinduism or Buddhism, but as others have pointed out, what they have in common can be broadly described by the concept of identity. Uh, the politics of these countries is shaped by the struggle for primacy between different identities and the struggle between claims of authenticity within different identities. And the claim of authenticity is almost always really a claim of hierarchy and therefore about power. Now, all politics is, to some degree, identity politics. But identity need not necessarily be understood as religious identity. In fact, political identity need not even be explicitly or consciously political. Uh, our identities as, say, parents could, for example, lead us to have certain concerns about education, which in turn may lead to certain political behaviors for us to choose which political party to support and how we vote. And we all have multiple identities. Nobody is ever only a Hindu or only a Buddhist or only a Christian or only a Muslim, or even only an agnostic or atheist. We are all also Indians, or Chinese or Malays. And not, never only Chinese or Indians or Malays, we are also parents or grandparents, or golfers or poker players or drinkers or teetotalers, uh, and ultimately citizens of one country or another. And there is in principle at least no limit to the number of identities that we could, that collectively, singly, or in some combination, define ourselves and our identities. Of course, we don't hold every facet of our multiple identities equally strongly all the time, and which aspect of our multiple identities we stress, whether consciously or unconsciously, is continually shifting according to circumstances. At any point of time, I think identity is almost always contingent, situational, and conditional. Politically, what matters, of course, is which identity is dominant at the point when we make electoral choices, at that moment of truth when alone in the voting booth we mark the ballot paper. And that is, of course, obviously situational and conditional, contingent on the circumstances of particular elections. And in the age of social media and smartphones, it may even be contingent on what information or opinion, true or false, trivial or profound, we happen to chance upon as we look at our phones while queuing up to step into the voting booth. Globally, social media is eroding traditional party affiliations and making politics everywhere more fluid, giving more scope for different facets or identities to assert political influence. And I don't see any reason why Southeast Asia should be exempt. Now, all that said, it is well known that in Southeast Asia, race, language, and religion have always been closely correlated and almost always inextricably entangled with nationalism. Uh, this is perhaps what most distinguishes Southeast Asian politics from the politics of other regions. 
In many Southeast Asian countries today, religious elements are beginning to be far more prominent in the definition of various identities. Uh, one qualification to this, though, more often than not, although these struggles, these political struggles, may appear to be about religion, and religion is often a tool, they are in reality about power. All the more so because, with only one clear exception, every other country in Southeast Asia is either explicitly or implicitly, formally or informally, organized on the basis of ethnic or religious hierarchy or some combination of the two. The exception is, of course, Singapore. We do not organize ourselves on the basis of hierarchy, but horizontally on the basis of multiracial meritocracy. Now, we are not perfect, but in this respect, at least, we are certainly unique. And from this point of view, the recent elections in Malaysia and Indonesia are not particularly different from previous elections, but are manifestations in a highly accentuated and hence dangerous form of political forces and political dynamics that have always existed in these countries. Of course, as Karl Marx pointed out, changes of quality or quantity lead to changes of quality, and that is the direction in which the trends in several Southeast Asian countries, to me, seem to be pointing. Why is this so? Well, there are specific reasons in each case, demographic reasons, cultural reasons, social economic reasons, and the policies of external states, among other reasons. We can go into this again during question time. But for now, let me just point out that Southeast Asia is also illustrative of much broader global trends. Because we live in an era in which identities of various kinds, ethnic identities, linguistic, religious, or secular identities, are being more insistently asserted everywhere, generating powerful centrifugal forces whose effects are accentuated and amplified by social media. The essential claim is almost always one of hierarchy, that one identity should be privileged over another. And ours is also an age where few societies are homogeneous. Almost all societies are today multicultural, multireligious, and multiracial. And certainly this is true in Southeast Asia. And both these act factors act and react on each other, enhancing both. Now, I don't have the time to analyze the reasons for this global assertion of identity in detail, but suffice it to say that political dysfunctionality or political weakness has a lot to do with it. Political weakness is not necessarily the result of lack of state capabilities. A strong state can be politically weak. A strong state can be a political failure. If religious identities are overwhelming other identities in Southeast Asia, leading to greater political polarization, and in some cases to violence, it is almost always because of political failure. Because political leaders have been unable to resist the temptation of mobilizing religion for political advantage, by privileging one religion over another, or have been too weak or too timid to resist the claims of greater authenticity that adherence of one religion or another may assert over other religions. Now Marx, and I'm fond of quoting Karl Marx, Karl Marx was wrong when he labeled religion the opium of the masses. Opium has a calming effect. <laughs> it makes you somnolent. But in the long art of history, religion has more often been a stimulant a catalyst for sometimes violent political conflict. Look what's happening in Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Myanmar, and not just Southeast Asia. Rohan just spoke about Sri Lanka. 
Look at India. Look at Pakistan, New Zealand, Australia, the Middle East, Europe, and the United States. None of this should strike any of you as novel, because in Singapore, we have always acknowledged the need for a politically strong and neutral state to hold the ring between different religions and different ethnicities in order to create and defend common space by requiring all to make compromises on the margins of their beliefs and their identities. Being so unique, Singapore's organizing principle is not self-sustaining. It was a political choice we made. And it was not the only choice possible. And it's still not the only choice possible. As David Easton, uh, some of you may be old enough to remember him, as David Easton pointed out many decades ago, politics is all about the authoritative allocation of values. And which value is allocated, which value is adopted is crucial. If our politics takes a different turn, uh, we could in future well choose to organize ourselves and make our policy on the basis of a liberal hierarchy or ethnic hierarchy or religious hierarchy or some other value, and it will be a very different Singapore. There are, in fact, some Singaporeans who think we ought to organize ourselves by some hierarchy or another. How many, I do not know, but anecdotal examples available on requests during question time. In any case, it would be foolish to think that we are somehow exempt from the global trends I have briefly described. So don't be too smug when watching what is happening in our neighbors. One last point. It's generally thought, and a politically incorrect point, it's generally thought that democracy is a good thing. I entirely agree, and I am not arguing that other systems are necessarily better. But we should not forget that democracy is to some degree dysfunctional by design to prevent an over-concentration of power. And we politely call these inherent and necessary dysfunctionalities of democracy checks and balances. Because these dysfunctionalities are inherent and necessary, democracy works best when politics operates within broadly agreed parameters. I do not see this sort of fundamental consensus in Southeast Asia, where the most crucial political contests are over the parameters and not within them. In fact, I see broadly agreed parameters breaking down and being contested, even in mature Western democracies. And on that very happy note, I shall end. Thank you. Okay, so on that very happy note, we come to question time. Uh, we have roughly about 20 minutes. Uh, so can I make the usual request that uh, when you go up to the mic, please state your name and uh, the organization you, you come along from. Uh, I propose that we maybe take two or three questions uh, at the same time. Uh, okay, let me be the first huh, to ask my, my question. So I want to pick up the point about leadership and uh, the role of the state, which I think all three uh, speakers uh, touch upon. Uh, but because they, they all dealt with very different issues, uh, I'll have to be quite specific with my question to each one of them on, on this point about leadership. So to James, I'm going to be very direct to you. Uh, there's a new leadership in Malaysia uh, held by Prime Minister Mahathir. Uh, you mentioned him several times in your talk, especially the early history of 
you know, the rise of political Islam. So can I ask you, what is your view about, are you more or less hopeful that the present leadership in Malaysia will be able to uh, resolve some of the issues and problems you raised about political Islam? And in the case of Rohan, again, uh, you mentioned uh, some of the failures of the, of the present leadership, uh, which led to a larger or greater extent to the incidents that we have seen. Uh, so can I ask your view about uh, the prospects of uh, a different kind of leadership in Sri Lanka, uh, which might be uh, more capable of, of resolving the issue? And for Bilahari, I'm going to take up your uh, offer, you know, to, to ask this question about uh, uh, Singapore in particular, uh, and maybe if you want to, Southeast Asian countries as well. Uh, how you, you said you did not rule out the possibility of, uh, of, of, of Singapore society, let's say, being organized along hierarchies instead of the present arrangement. So where do you see the, greater, the greatest danger coming from uh, with regards to this, this, this development? And what is it that we should watch out for? So can I ask James to respond first? Uh, thank you very much. Just a slight correction. Uh, it's not a new leadership. This is Mahathir 2.0. <laughs> okay. So he's actually been around. Yeah, yeah. Good years. point. Um, yep. yeah. So I'll be very blunt uh, to yeah. audience. I'm sure you all know Malaysia very well. I mean, we are neighbours. Uh, the short answer is no. The, the thing that's occupying the Pakatang Harapan government now, of course, uh, recently is the sex video, but that is just a side show. The real preoccupation is uh, how to win re-election. Uh, there are many people in Malaysia worried that Pakatan may turn out to be a one-term uh, wonder. And there's great fear, especially among the, the middle class in Malaysia, who are worried that you know, if AMNO and PAS get into power, then really they're going to rewrite everything. It will be you know, the, the sort of the ending game for political Islam. So they're obsessed with this issue of how to do something in the next two or three years to make sure that they win re-election. Now, having said that, um, my impression is that the government is well aware of the dangers of political Islam, but the problem is the hands are tied. Uh, as I mentioned in my presentation, uh, one is the constitutional setup, because at the state level, it's really controlled by the individual sultans. So that's the reason why um, you see open reports about the uh, Sultan of Johor disagreeing with Jakim and all that sort of stuff. Uh, currently, the Conference of Rulers have, have started a review of status of Islam vis-a-vis -vis federal power and state power. Uh, my understanding is that the review is currently underway and they'll probably report sometime next year. Um, my take on the situation is that very little can be done. Uh, the core problem is not only at the constitutional level, but at the state level, at the ground level, there's really no data when it comes to all these private madrasa. Everybody knows they exist, but nobody can actually uh, uh, can come out and tell me exactly how many there are. Uh, there's been attempts to register all these private madrasa. In some states, they work very well. In some states, they don't work very well. But the bottom line is that we don't have adequate data. The thing that really worries me is not so much the data, but it's the fact that nobody really knows what's being taught. Uh, the guessing game in Malaysia is that the best guess they have is that Many of these madrasa, uh, the curriculum is based on the founder itself. 
So the founder comes from Pakistan, he'll teach the Pakistan thing that he's... Oh, if he comes from uh, the Middle East, it'll be the Middle East thing. Uh, the other thing that's related to all this private curriculum is the fact that very often they take the students in at a very young level, sorry, at a very young age, and they go through 10 years up to the teenage levels. They have virtually no contact with the non-Muslim population. So the issue is that what do you do with these people uh, you know, when they're ready to go out, out of the madrasa? And very often, a lot of them do not end up in the state school system. Basically, they don't have any skills. So all these things are, you know, it's sort of going round and round. Uh, so the bottom line is that, yes, the government is worried about it, but because uh, their main aim is to win re-election, uh, my take is that very uh, limited action will be taken until after the elections, uh, whatever it comes. Thank you. Rohan? The political leaders in Sri Lanka had to depend on the Muslim vote to remain in power. And because of that, they were very careful not to regulate the religious space. They thought that if they said that religious visa should be issued, the money coming from Saudi Arabia and other Middle Eastern countries to build uh, new madrasas, mosques, should come through government account. They thought that they will lose the Muslim vote. So that is why I said that the terrorist attack in Sri Lanka is not an intelligence failure. It's not an operational failure. It's a failure of leadership. So it is essential during this period that leaders especially have to be educated. Leadership at different levels, not only the apex leaders, but even parliamentarians, even community leaders. Not only that, those who are part of the Muslim institutions, for example, the ulema councils, they themselves have to understand what is happening in the world. If they do not, then they will, uh, they will tacitly allow these ideologies to come and take root. So there's what is called creeping radicalization that took place. That is how those who believe in traditional Islam, local and traditional Islam, what is called the Sufi Muslim heritage, it was replaced. Only about 20% of the Sufis are there. So largely we had the Salafis, the Tawheed sects, the Tablighi Jamaat, the Jamaat Islami, even the Muslim Brotherhood, the Iqmanul Muslimin, these ideologies came. So I believe that there should be two things. One is the strict laws, and of course, enforcement. Having the laws itself is insufficient. And second is investment in education, both in the physical sphere and also in the online sphere. Finally, I want to share with you that the Sri Lanka attack offers many lessons, because this is the first attack, but it was a very brutal attack. And the Muslim threat group attacked churches. The Christians, the Catholics, have been a very peaceful community in Sri Lanka. As a Buddhist, I can tell you that some Buddhists may have insulted Muslims, such as Jnanasara. But the Catholics and the Christians never did. 
anything. But they attack the Catholics and the Christians because that is the instruction from IS Syria. That is the trend. So you can see what these harmful ideologies and practices from overseas can do. And that is why it is so essential for leaders to understand this threat. So managing the national security space, it is not only educating those soldiers and policemen, but also educating the leaders at different levels. Thank you. Um, Fukong, you asked where, what are the greatest challenge for Singapore and where does it come from? I think the greatest challenge is to maintain social cohesion in this era of greater accession of identities globally. And I think there are three main uh, external sources of, uh, of, of threat to social cohesion. The first is not really um, peculiar to Singapore. It's a phenomenon that I call the Arabization of Islam or maybe more specifically, the Wahhabiization of Islam. Um, you heard Rohan, I mean, as in Sri Lanka, traditional Islam in Southeast Asia was very Sufis, syncretic, and so on. That's gone. And I don't think you can put it back together. I don't think you can entirely blame Saudi Arabia or any other Gulf countries for this. Yes, they are a factor, the money they give, but we don't allow them to give money in Singapore, and you still see the factor. You still see it here. I mean, you're my age, Fukuang, so when we were young, it was very rare to see a Singapore Muslim woman cover her head. You know, it, of course it exists, but very rare. Right? Now it is very common. Uh, and I think it is not just Saudi Arabia, it is a certain lack of self-confidence among Southeast Asian Muslims. Why do I say that? And it's a bit controversial, I know. Uh, I often conduct a slightly naughty experiment. When I see a Singapore Malay woman cover her head, I pretend not to know the name of this covering and ask her, what is it? And but half the time, they say, hijab. And I always say, yes, you've got a good Malay word for this thing. It's called tudong. Why must you use the word, an Arab word? And I noticed, like last Hari Raya, I see signs all over the place and even cards, Eid Mubarak. Why use an Arabic phrase when you have a good Malay phrase, Lama Hairaya? And I think the reason is simple. There is a certain lack of cultural confidence among all Southeast Asian Muslims. In fact, probably globally. Uh, because the language of the Quran is Arabic, and therefore anything coming from that part of the world has a certain uncritical acceptance as authentic. The second external trend, I think, is attempts by states to use identity as, uh, as an instrument of state policy. You know again that some years ago, it's coming, or coming 20 odd years ago, we had to expel an American diplomat from Singapore, and his essential sin was to try to impose a Western political identity on Singapore. And more recently, I have written quite extensively about Chinese influence operations that try to oppose a Chinese identity on multiracial Singapore. And I think the dangers of that are quite self-evident. Uh, I don't think a Western political identity is going to be extremely attractive to a very large number of Singaporeans. There will be a thin strata, but it's intrinsically self-limiting. However, I cannot say 
that the idea of Singapore as a Chinese country is intrinsically unattractive to all my Chinese compatriots. How many find it attractive, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure for one reason or the other, some do. The third external threat is, again from the West, but not really a political threat. Uh, it is certain strands of evangelical Christianity are having uh, quite a profound influence, I think, on Christianity in Singapore. If I'm not mistaken, various strands of evangelical Christianity are probably the fastest growing religion in Singapore. Uh, why is it, why do I say it's a challenge? Well, I'll, I'll answer that by giving you a story. You know I'm chairman of the Middle East Institute. Not so long ago, one of my researchers received threats, clearly from an evangelical Christian group, who did not like what he had to write, to write about the Middle East. No, I don't entirely agree with him himself, but you know, he has his own view, right? And it's a legitimate view. It's not an extreme view either. But it was a view against these people's beliefs. And so they issued anonymous online threats, which are being investigated by the police, and I hope to hear of arrests soon. <laughs> now, what all these three things have in common is that all of them, as I said in my opening remarks, have embedded in these belief statements an assumption of hierarchy, with, of course, themselves at the top. The Arab form of Islam is much more authentic than Southeast Asia. A Chinese identity or Western political identity is far more authentic than what is existent. And evangelical Christianity is far more authentic than the mainstream churches. That is a danger. Well, thank you. Uh, I invite questions from the floor. I think Bilari especially has said enough for any confident Muslims, Chinese and evangelical Christians to, to make your comments or, or, or ask your question. Please. Yes, please. I see a hand over there. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, my name is Amir Ali. I'm from the Interreligious Organization. Just a very quick question for Dr. Rohan Gunaratna. After the bombing in the church, uh, uh, Easter bombing by the Muslim terrorist group, whom I understand is was from a very rich family. Uh, was there any outright condemnations by the various Muslim NGOs in Sri Lanka? Thank you. Yes, the Muslim groups immediately condemned these attacks. In Sri Lanka, there are three Muslim structures. One is the main ulema body called the Jamiatul uh, Ulema Council. And this council has conducted a session about IS, about ISIS, and explained to the people. And this body is the first body to condemn that. And I want to tell you that something remarkable happened in Sri Lanka after the attacks. That is a cardinal. He's a remarkable man because the president and the prime minister were ineffective on that day. So the cardinal, he visited the attack sites and the cardinal told the Catholics, if you attack any Muslim, 
you will not go to heaven. You see? So when I met the cardinal, I told him, you were both the president and the prime minister on that day. <laughs> and he was very happy. So <laughs> oh, you go to heaven. <laughs> okay. Any more questions? Yes, yes, Jillian, please. Hi, I'm Jillian. Uh, Rohan, can you just tell us what is it about uh, our Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act that uh, Sri Lanka is looking at? What, what are those precise bits and tenets that you think uh, Sri Lanka uh, feels it needs? And I think, I guess, reflecting back, what then uh, do we... Uh, think about more clearly and sort of try to feel that there's a lot of value in in our act and Given the current developments what do you feel needs to be changed or bumped up or strengthened or introduced um, Into our current act. Thank you The harmony uh, the maintenance of harmony in Singapore the act itself is a huge guidance and the fact that you have brought leaders of different denominations together and they will work together at the highest level of government. See, there is no such structure in Sri Lanka. So for the first time a group of Muslims, Catholics, Hindus, they all came together, and Buddhists, they came together and they examined the Singapore Act and they developed the Act very much based on the Singapore Act. I want to tell you that they have almost taken the entire Act, <laughs> but they have given credit to the Singapore Act. And they met with, they met with uh, individual the parliamentarians and they also met with the speaker, the speaker of the parliament in Sri Lanka. And this speaker is now moving forward. But of course, the Sri Lankan version of this act will be debated. With regard to the Singapore Act, my own view is no piece of law is good forever because the threat landscape constantly changes. So based on those changes, Singapore Act itself, I believe, will evolve to meet those challenges. I see two or three main challenges. One is the threat in the Middle East is now coming to Southeast Asia. And the Southeast Asian threat is affecting Singapore. That is one. Second is the threat, the dominant threat in Singapore is no longer the threat in the physical space. Because the Internal Security Department of Singapore dismantled the Jama Islami and those structures that existed in Singapore very effectively. But 
The threat is largely virtual space, cyberspace. So these two should be taken into consideration as you modify and update your laws, including the Harmony Act. Fortunately, you have Minister of Law and Home Affairs, who is a lawyer, who understands this. But I believe that it is so crucial for all laws to be constantly reviewed and revised, to meet the changing threat, because the threat landscape is changing so rapidly. So please, I know the bell rang. I'm actually... No, <laughs> go ahead. Get my yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> pay doc for extending the time of this for, uh, 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 session. But therefore, if the threat environment is changing, may I just invite James and, uh, of course, Mr. Kausakan to talk about their assessment of whether there's been any spillover uh, in the use of political Islam in our neighboring countries to Singapore. I, is, have there been attempts? Are there links? Uh, James, and uh, for Mr. Kausakan, yeah, do you see that spillover of political Islam, um, Malaysia, Indonesia, how they play politics? and whether there's some mind share here or not. Thank you. Okay, I'll allow one more question. Uh, Zainal, why don't you ask your question, then we can take it all together. Yeah, uh, actually it takes more than a question and answer session. What uh, the comments made by Bilahari is now, about Muslims. Mm -hmm. Early on, the, Farah mentioned about the problem of oversimplification or, or exaggeration about the extremists whether there can also be a problem for oversimplification or exaggeration about what constitutes the Muslim problem in Singapore, especially about dressing. Uh, just a, a quick brief uh, comment is that what's more important is not what they put on their head, but what's in their head. Mm. So I think the challenge for us is actually how to make sure that the Muslims here understand the meaning of multiracial living and harmony in Singapore and this is why I've, I really give a lot of uh, credit to our strong leadership in wanting what kind of Singapore, not a Muslim Singapore, not, uh, not a Malay Singapore, not a Chinese Singapore, not an Indian Singapore, but Singapore for all. And that has actually made a success of Singapore, I thought. Thank you. Okay, we'll start with uh, your end of the table, James. Uh, you can decide, you can pick whichever question you want to answer. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll answer Jilip directly. Um, my impression is that uh, they're not interested in Singapore. They're interested in changing the Malaysian landscape. And uh, one of the unusual things is that my impression is that um, when they talk about exporting the model, it's not so much exporting the model. They're trying to create a model, as in the Malay Islamic State, as I mentioned earlier, right? Um, I'm not aware of any, any uh, Islamic ideology that says that you must have racial character to it. So they're trying to create a model which they think that, you know, I mean, when, when you talk to them, what is really interesting, um, They'll say things that you know all the previous models is not work around the world, so we're trying to create a unique one for Malaysia. And if there's any model they want to look at in terms of trying to get some ideas, they're actually looking towards Brunei. Mm. Rohan, there's a very significant development in the immediate neighbourhood of Singapore. If you look at the last election in Indonesia. General Prabowo's campaign, he worked very closely 
with a number of groups. He worked with PKS, the Muslim Brotherhood, with FPIS, he worked with Jama Islamia, he worked with JAD, he worked with Jama Salafia. A dozen groups that are exclusivist and extremist. And it itself is a very significant threat to Indonesia and to the region and to Singapore. So as I see it, the state and the responsible political parties must be very careful of using these groups because eventually no one will be able to control these groups. That is what happened in Pakistan. That is what happened in Saudi Arabia. And that is what happened in every other country that we have seen. That when these groups are used for political purposes, they assume their own momentum and their own dynamism. And the state is no longer able to control them. Thank you. As I know, I think you misunderstood me. If you want to cover your head, cover your head. You don't want to cover your head, don't cover your head. My point is, why do you have to use Arab phrases when you have Malay words? Right? Why say it Mubarak when you can say Islam Raya? Why call it a hijab when you have Tudong? That is a deeper problem uh, than whether you believe or in what you believe, you know? Because I don't think actually what is happening in Malaysia and Indonesia is of great attraction to the Singapore Muslim community or the political class in Singapore as a whole. Uh, I mean, we're not that daft. Huh? We can see the downsides of it. In fact, a few years ago, you may remember, I was quite cheered. There was somebody in Malaysia who, who said Muslims should not greet, uh, greet their Chinese friends, Happy Chinese New Year, or something like that. And I do remember passing a few mosques which actually had banners wishing people a Happy Chinese New Year. Uh, so I don't think it's that attractive. And you know uh, what would happen to you if any political party in Singapore tries to use race, language, or religion as a political tool. <laughs> you know what will happen to you. Electoral defeat will be the least of your problems. <laughs> so it comes back, you know, a few years ago, one party, okay, Pritam Singh of the Workers' Party, I've named him already, so I tried to use the Palestinian issue, asking questions in, in, obviously, but he didn't do his homework anyway, it didn't work, right? So they haven't done it since. But you know what happened to you. So it boils down to a point I think all of us have made in the same way. It boils down to political leadership, political strength, and political courage. Thank you. So, okay, I am not going to try to summarize this discussion. I better don't, correct? So I just want to ask all of you to join me in thanking our three speakers. <laughs> <laughs>